Welcome to Live and Air Podcast, your fortnightly show with interviews and insights on meditation, mindfulness, and consciousness. This podcast is brought to you by liveandair.com, and I'm your host, Giovanni Dinstman. This is episode number 10, and I'm interviewing Sir John Hargrave, CEO of Media Shower and author of the book Mind Hacking. Let's get started. John, welcome to the show. Hi, Giovanni. I'm glad to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. I am, first of all, an alcoholic and addict. I have been sober for about seven and a half years now. And one of the first things I did when I made the decision to get sober was to learn how to wrestle with my mind. For those who have tried to kick a habit or get sober or change their way of thinking, they know that your mind is one of the most difficult things there is to wrestle with, your worst enemy. But I found it can also be your best friend. And so throughout my journey to sobriety, I learned this series of, call them mind hacks. And that's what I put into my new book called Mind Hacking. Nice. It's very spot on because addiction is such a central theme to our human existence. I think almost everybody struggles with some type of addiction. For some people, it's alcohol, cigarettes, porn, food. It can be something more subtle, like some thought patterns, some specific ways of thinking. So I think learning how to deal with addiction, it's a great way to achieve internal mastery. So what would you suggest for a person struggling with addiction? Well, in Mind Hacking, we talk about a three-step process. And the first step is to become aware of the mind. That is much of what your podcast is about here, so this will not be new to your audience. But for most folks, just becoming aware that they have a mind, people can see it intellectually, but on an everyday basis, we are so tightly bound up or identified with our mind that we forget to step back and develop that awareness to take that sense of, I am not my mind, I can actually control my mind. Mm. And then... We use a computer metaphor, so we really treat the brain like a programming environment. So like a developer, we learn to debug the mind or identify the negative thought loops that are holding us back. And those are the perpetually negative or anxious, depressed or addictive patterns of thought that play again and again in our head. Mm -hmm. So that's the second step is, is learning to debug. And then the third step is learning to reprogram our minds with positive thought loops and with the right kind of coding. And there's an amazing relief and release that comes with learning this process because you realize that you're not your mind and you don't have to believe everything that your mind thinks. You have the freedom to program and reprogram your mind just like a computer program. Yes, yes. I think what you said there is beautiful because all spiritual traditions, they speak about our true identity and they say that we are not the mind, but it's really hard to grasp that we are not the mind. We are so identified with our thought patterns and with the story that our mind constantly tells ourselves. Yeah. First of all, I love talking with you about this because you're going to tie it back into the religious and spiritual traditions. And I want to know that because I approach it from this perspective of a computer geek. 
Hmm. I do agree with you that becoming aware of the mind is fundamental. And I often use the analogy of a movie theater. So when you walk in to see a movie and you sit down, you know, the theater, the trailers play, and then the movie starts, and I'm a movie geek, so I like to analyze the movie and the cinematography and the music. Mm -hmm. But if it's a good movie, you get lost in it. Yes. You get absorbed in the movie, and you forget temporarily that you're watching a movie because you're actually living that story. And that's very much like our minds. So we walk around all day in our own private movie. And when our minds tell us something, whether that's positive or negative, whether it's true or false, we tend to believe it because we are so wrapped up in that movie. So learning to develop that sense of standing outside the movie theater or just being aware that I'm watching a movie is so freeing and is fundamental to this concept of mind hacking. Yes. Let me pick your brain a little bit on this. Let's say that a person is struggling with the addiction to eating sweets. And then he's walking down the road and then he sees his favorite ice cream shop. Then he becomes aware, like, there is this impulse to go there and to buy and, and to eat. Then what does he do at this moment? Well, it's a 21-day program, first of all. However, I can say generally, as you go through this program, you learn how to tie that craving for sweets back into a negative thought or loop that you have going on. That loop may be, I don't have enough energy. I need sweets in order to be myself, in order to be happy, in order to achieve my maximum capability. If you can become aware of those negative thought loops, that's the debugging part, then you can start to reprogram that with the positive equivalent. So for example, I don't need sweets, I am capable, I make healthy choices for myself. Mm -hmm. And I have placed those habits with positive eating habits. I see. So it would be more like a program where you, you look inside yourself, you become aware of the reasons behind your actions, as if you're debugging a program, right? You see like, where does that mental pattern start? What was at the root of it? And then you kind of use affirmations to reprogram it on the uh, opposite level. Yeah, that's a good summary. So uh, we have an acronym, which is METAL, which is my emotion, thought, action loop. So every action is preceded by a thought. You think you're going to do something before you do it, generally. And every thought is preceded by an emotion. So emotion, thought, action is the sequence. And generally, if you can trace that backwards, so look at the action like constantly eating sweets, what is the thought that precedes that? And what is the emotion that precedes that? That is a very useful way of debugging that down to that root where you can then reprogram it with a positive equivalent. Mm. And at the same time, for us to be able to go through this process, we need a certain degree of, um, of introspection, of ability to look inside ourselves and to see what's going on. For most people, this is really hard. And it's where I think meditation comes in to help you stabilize your attention when looking inside, to process this psychological materials, to be able to look at them with uh, some impartiality. Absolutely. So one of the first exercises in the book, we call them mind games, is essentially daily meditation practice. We call it concentration training in the book. Mm -hmm. And we uh, draw the analogy to Luke Skywalker learning to master the force in Star Wars. 
But essentially, when you think about it, meditation is concentration training. And I've been practicing meditation or concentration for several decades now, and I have found it to be of tremendous value. The way that we present it in the book for an audience that may not be interested in traditional meditation practice is to treat it like a game. We treat it like a video game where you focus your attention on the breath, for example, and when you notice a thought arising, then you mentally say thought, but you award yourself a point for that as if you're playing a video game. And by doing that, what our beta testers have told us is that it turns the internal dialogue away from, oh, I'm thinking again, which is usually we get disappointed because I'm supposed to be maintaining a clear mind. It turns that on its head and instead it becomes a reward. Oh, I caught myself thinking. Hmm. I became aware of my mind and therefore I reward myself with a point. And that makes a lot of difference for a lot of people. I like that because you are kind of gamifying the, the process yeah. of, a, <laughs> of a meditation. What we have to do is to become aware when we become distracted. But the moment we are aware of distraction, we are not distracted anymore. That is the important piece that carries over into your everyday life. You become more aware of your mind and you become more able to pull yourself out of the stream of thoughts at just random times throughout the day and mm -hmm. to say, wait a minute, this is an obsessive thought, or this isn't entirely true, or this isn't really corresponding with reality. Yes. And I can see that now because I've been spending 20 or 30 minutes in the morning, and mm. that's why it's so valuable. From what I read in your book, by repeatedly doing this exercise and the other mind games that you propose, you come to the realization that you're not your mind. And you call this meta-thinking? That's right. One of the words that we use for that ability or that state of being on top of your mind is meta-thinking. The technical term is metacognition or thinking about your thinking. But that's the critical skill that we want to develop. And so the analogy is to your mind that your everyday life is like that normal user access. But you can develop the facility of getting into that super user access where you're able to essentially have expanded powers hmm. over your own mind. Hmm. And, you know, we are using our mind and identified with it, and that's okay, as long as we can jump into that higher level super user access when needed. As long as we don't forget our true position. Yes. There is this metaphor in, in traditional books, which is your mind is like a house, and all of these thoughts and emotions that come in there like guests, so if the master of the house is not there, the guests just make a mess and they, they feel they are, they are the owner of the house. But we have to reclaim our position as the master of the house. So then we say, no, you can come or you cannot come or you can come, but you cannot stay. You have to leave now. That's the process of getting back to our super user mode, as you say. I love that metaphor and I will make it more geeky. It is like an operating system on which you are allowing any program to be installed. So I have a friend who has a phone that is constantly crashing on him and the battery lasts for like 15 minutes. And it's because he has 10,000 apps on this, just sucking his battery and his energy. And I'm constantly telling him, you have to be vigilant 
about what you put on your phone hmm. and on your computer because if you're not careful you will install these bloated enormous programs that will take all of your ram and all of your processing power and you won't have a functioning phone anymore and our minds are so similar to that we waste a tremendous amount of mental energy on these things we can't control if we allow ourselves to so becoming aware of that being vigilant about who we invite in or what we install is absolutely what we're after like the buddha say you wouldn't allow a thief to come in your house and take everything right you will lock the doors and you you'll be vigilant but at the same time, most people are not equally vigilant of their minds. They allow any type of thought to come and, and create havoc. And if the Buddha were alive today, he would say it is like allowing spyware or viruses to install themselves on your computer and take over. Yeah, it's, it's like opening an attachment from a weird email that looks like... A... <laughs> <laughs> now, it is my understanding that the state of our mind from our meditation, from the time we are sitting on the cushion and in our daily life, these two states, they are kind of uh, intermingled. So what we achieve, we bring to our daily life. And at the same time, how we keep our mind in the daily life will make our meditation harder or easier when we sit on the cushion. So many times people complain that their mind is so restless and that they're thinking about so many things that they have to do when they, they go and sit on the cushion to meditate. And part of this is just the natural habit of the mind to keep thinking about anything that is interested in, anything that is attached to. But I believe that part of this is actually our bad habits of thinking, that we don't kind of close the loops. We keep so many things in our mind instead of keeping them on paper or our calendar. And I saw that you wrote about this. So could you speak a little bit more how people can declutter their mind so when they sit to meditate, their mind is less busy with their day-to-day -day affairs? Sure. So there is a great amount of research that shows that multitasking is a myth. We know from research that if we add additional cognitive tasks to whatever it is we're doing, whether that's texting while driving or answering email while we're sitting in a meeting or playing online poker while we're flying a plane, Whatever those additional tasks are, we do every successive task worse. Mm -hmm. So the more we try to multitask, the worse we do at each task. My definition of multitasking is doing two or more things badly at once. So when we consciously try to craft a lifestyle where we can reduce the opportunities or the temptations to multitask, we can make ourselves much freer right away. Our technology, our instant messages and our chat requests and leaving Skype open all day and emails and all of these things serve as like open task loops. Every time one of these things happens or interrupts our flow, our state of mental concentration, we feel obliged to answer it. And it causes this mild kind of psychic anxiety. David Allen, who's the author of Getting Things Done, he calls it psychic clutter. Mm -hmm. And so you're right that when we go into meditation or concentration training, those things stay with us. And that mild sense of being overwhelmed, of having so much stuff to do, of having all of these open task loops comes with us. 
one of the exercises or, or mind games in the book then is to spend an hour consciously shutting down as many of those daily interruptions as you can. So turning off your chat programs, only setting aside certain periods of the day to answer email and so forth. So crafting a lifestyle that allows you to have periods of greater, more intense focus. And it also helps your meditation practice and your meditation practice, in turn, helps you to do more of that decluttering on a daily basis. Yes. One of our great addictions is email and that obsessive loop of wanting to answer everything as soon as it comes in because we want to be responsible and we want to be responsive, but we can't do our best work when we're always responding any of those open fragments of tasks that might be things that are on the desk or pieces of paper that you've written something down or it's notes or ideas for a blog post or something like that, you basically go file it in a place where you can get to it later. And then you can kind of start your week off with a totally clean, fresh slate. Call it the weekly sweep. Yes. Following through that process, I also noticed that nowadays it's very rare for me to have a thought during meditation that I feel like, oh, I need to write this down during meditation so I don't forget because it usually has already been written down before. Beautiful. So you're closing those open task loops. Yes. So for the listeners out there, I would suggest them to go through some procedures like this and close these open loops and your meditation will probably be much less restless. Even during the day, you have less thoughts. It's just really powerful. I wanted to ask you, how do you deal with social media then? Well, again, social media can be an addiction in its own right. I basically use social media as more of an outbound communication vehicle. So I blog regularly on our company website, mediashower.com. I use my social media accounts to basically amplify the message, get it out to all the people who follow me on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. I don't do a lot of additional socializing on those social networks. And sometimes I feel badly when someone says, oh, you missed this major life event that I told everyone about on Facebook. Yes, I just had twins. And I'll say, sorry, didn't know you were pregnant. <laughs> so that's the downside. However, the upside is that I've eliminated this huge potential time suck from my life, hmm. which is, you know, people really fall into this habit again of responding to everything that happens in social media. That's how I personally treat it. Nice. And as you said, I think it's very easily turned into an addiction because of the instant dopamine we get when we kind of open Facebook or something to see like how many people liked what I post or uh, what are they saying about that thing that I mentioned of my life. Like you're constantly going into self-feedback loops about your personality and kind of like constantly living inside this world of our personality, of our ego. So when we switch that off, we're suddenly much more available for the present moment and even for looking inside and exploring some, some deeper levels of our being. That's such a good insight that we can get trapped into those ego loops so easily. And I think so much of our technology is designed to play on our sense of ego and how many followers I have, and how many people liked or favorited something that I wrote. You're, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, in the sense that if it gets a lot of traffic and a lot of people like it, well, look how great I am. Hmm. And if it doesn't, 
<laughs> you're like, why didn't more people see my brilliance yeah. in that post that I put out there? Yeah. And that's another way of reinforcing your ego. So I agree with you that these tools can be used for that, but also if we release ourselves from them through becoming aware of the mind, can be used as ways of amplifying positive messages like you are with this podcast. I see internet, social media, technology as a mirror for our minds. It amplifies what's already going on inside our minds. I love that. I'm going to use that quote, probably, Giovanni, but <laughs> technology amplifies what's already going on in our mind. I love that. I think that's so true. Think of all of the searches that are being done across the entire internet mirror our global mind, our, our the mind of our species. Yeah. But certainly, technology mirrors our individual minds as well. And the true distraction is the mind, not the technology. Hmm. And that's a theme of mind hacking is I love technology. I grew up as a computer geek. I had one of the first personal computers in my bedroom as a teenager, the Commodore 64, and I loved this <laughs> machine so much. I would have I would have slept with it, except it had like hard angular corners. <laughs> it was made out of plastic. But if it had been like a plush doll, I would have cuddled and spooned it at night. <laughs> and I've always had that love for technology. It's amazing to me still that I'm talking with you right now across the world and we're able to communicate and we're going to like be in the ears of other people in the future. These hmm. things blow my mind. But we don't have good rules for how to use this technology yet. It's also new that we haven't developed guidelines for it. And so it does amplify our mind because in a sense it's unchecked. We haven't developed rules such as I don't have to respond every time I get a text message <laughs> that comes in. I can set periods of time where I completely unplug or I completely focus on a task or I sit and meditate. Those are the types of rules that we're just learning to develop. And so technology is not the problem. Our minds are the problem. That those of us who develop this ability to focus and concentrate our minds will have a natural advantage. Hmm. Those of us who develop this ability to harness our minds will have a natural advantage. And that to me seems like common sense. If you can concentrate and focus, you're naturally going to have advantages that people who are chronically distracted will not. And that's why I'm so passionate about sharing this message. It's the survival of the focus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great. I had not already had a subtitle for the book. That would have been a great <laughs> subtitle. Yeah. Now, switching gears a little bit, the second section of your book, it's about imagining. There are three sections of your book, analyzing, imagining, and reprogramming. Could you speak a little bit about imagining? Yeah. So imagination is the most fun part of the mind hacking program because that's where we get to dream. And imagination is a funny thing because we all are born with it. We have it as children. And over time, for many of us, that imagination kind of dries up. And so developing the ability and a comfort level with our own imagination 
to picture what it is we want out of life, where we want our lives to go. That's the skill that we learn in that, that section of the book. So if I ask you, Giovanni, mm -hmm. what, what do you want out of life? Not what don't you want? You might have kind of a vague idea or you might have completely spelled out 10-year plans. I don't know, but most people don't. Most people have only a vague idea or more likely just an idea of what they don't want out of life. There's a number of exercises that we use in there to help you determine what it is that you want. One of them is called the funeral speech. So one day you and I will both be dead. Yes. Sorry to break the news. <laughs> At our funeral, I, I don't know why we die on the same day and have a joint funeral. <laughs> so at our funeral, Somebody's going to sit up and stand up and say something. What is it that we want them to say about us? What is it that we want our lives to stand for? And so that's one of the sample imagination exercises or mind games in that part of the book. And to put that into a sentence, you know, I want to help people discover the power of their minds, or I want to help people achieve enlightenment or to become more peaceful and happy. Those are the types of things that we're using for those positive reprogramming loops. And it all starts in the imagination. I think that's very powerful. I think that brings people back to the impermanence of life and to what is really important. Because when we, when we live kind of zoomed in in the day-to-day -day life, we lose focus, we lose perspective on what's really happening. And we need to zoom out. So these exercises help people to zoom out. The other one, was the $50 million exercise. You imagine you got $50 million from uh, somebody that died in your family. Yeah, what would you do with it? Now you're free. You can do anything you want. No need to work. You can give it to charity. You can start your own charity. You can start a business. What is it that you would do with that? And it's not really what you would buy. It's more like now you have complete freedom from having to earn money what is it that you want to do, you really want to do with your life? You know, I saw Sal Khan speak, the founder of Khan Academy recently. Terrific speaker. Hear the story of Khan Academy. It's terrific. This is the online learning platform that is completely free for anyone in the world that teaches you everything from math skills to science to geography. Become an empire. And one of the things that he decided early on was as his little experiment, he said to himself, well, what's the biggest possible thing that this could become? And he said, you know, we could turn this into a for-profit company and this could really become one of the largest, you know, educational companies in the world. Or we could keep this a nonprofit and we could make this one of the most significant educational institutions like a Harvard, for example, in the world. And he chose to go the, the nonprofit route and really make it free and open and accessible to everyone. But I loved, I was deeply inspired by that idea of what's the largest possible good that we could do with our lives? What's the biggest greatest thing that you could do to improve the planet and the human race. Love thinking about that. So let me ask you, if you got $50 million, what would you do? 
Maserati, first of all, and then I'd buy a 10 million bouncy balls and I would let them loose on the streets of San Francisco where there's many hills and they would all bounce down and cause havoc. I would not do either of those things. That was a terrible answer. I don't even like cars. Uh, what would I do? Well, I'm really engaged in this mind hacking program and to be able to pursue this and, and build this out to touch the lives of even more people would be a really fun project that I'd love to be involved in. I assume you don't have $50 million yet, but you're already doing this. That's right. That's yeah. right. And, and that's the point is by imagining what could I do, then you can start to see, well, what can I do? How could I start moving in that direction? right now. And when you start to reprogram your mind with those loops of here's what I want to be known for, or here's how I want to be remembered, or here's what I want to accomplish, as if by magic, you will find yourself starting to automatically move in that direction. You'll see those opportunities that can start to move you toward those goals. The moment you get clarity on what you really want and what you're really after, things start happening. You suddenly find time you suddenly find opportunities. Yeah, once you decide what it is you want, not what you don't want, but what it is you want, it is amazing. And, you know, I would imagine it's like your podcast. Once you started doing the podcast, suddenly you've already said you start getting more email, you start getting more people contacting you, but you also notice more opportunities now mm. coming your way because you're taking the time to, to do this thing that you're passionate about. Yes. Now, just one more topic I would like to discuss. Uh, you mentioned in your book the reality distortion field. Could you speak a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's one of my favorite topics. This comes from Steve Jobs. People who worked with him, the original Macintosh development team, described that he had a presence or a charisma about him that they called the reality distortion field. This was taken from a Star Trek episode but the idea was that when Jobs wanted something, you would go into a meeting with him convinced that it couldn't be done. So one of the early stories was they wanted to ship the Macintosh software in 12 weeks, I believe. Mm -hmm. And this new developer came on board and he said, no way this can be done in 12 weeks. And the other developer said, you're going to go into this meeting and Jobs is going to talk you into it because he has a reality distortion field. And he says, it won't happen. And he went in. It came out totally convinced they could do it in 12 weeks. And they did. They actually got it. Yeah. And so this idea of being so convinced that something is achievable for you or mm. something is possible for you, that you can actually affect the minds of others or actually give off a sense of we can all do this together. So one of the mind games in the book is... The reality distortion field and it's basically imagining this thing that you want to achieve or that you want to become you want to do has already been done that you've already accomplished it that it's already in progress it's an inevitability and when you start to do that on a daily basis and practice it make it a habit make it a mental thought pattern as we just discussed, you start to see these opportunities, you start to see things actually falling into place. And lo and behold, these things actually get done. You might call it a self-fulfilling prophecy. It is. I mean, it's the best kind of self-fulfilling prophecy because it gets you to where you want to go.
so this reality distortion field, it's kind of having faith in yourself, having faith in your vision, having this kind of blind commitment, this like total trust that yes, this is what I want and this can happen. Yeah, it is a faith. It's a belief. It's a, a you might for the word confidence in what you can do. And it's something that I wrestled with for many years where I had low self-confidence in, in many areas where I felt like I'm just not good enough to do this. I'm not, I'm, I don't have the smarts or intelligence of other people or the resources. And by repeating these things to me, by visualizing this reality distortion field where this is already done, this thing has already been accomplished, I have been able to turn those around. I own a successful company now, the content marketing company, Media Shower. Hmm. Got this great book coming out in January 2016. Hmm. I'm talking with you, Giovanni. <laughs> this is one of my biggest accomplishments. Right, Still right. have to be here. <laughs> That's good, man. Good. And so it works. Yeah. There's one master called Nisargadatta Maharaj. He met his master and his master told him, you are not the mind, you are pure consciousness. And Nisargadatta Maharaj said, I believed him. And that did it for me. So he believed his master and he believed this message that I am not the mind, I am pure consciousness. So that was his reality distortion field, so to speak. Even though we can say that it's, uh, it's the reality field, not the reality distortion field in this case. But he took this pointing, I am not my mind, I'm just pure consciousness. He stayed with it because he trusted it. And little by little, on the next three years of his life, that kind of brushed off all the illusions, all the suffering away from his mind. And he, he became awakened. I love that story. When we have faith or confidence, or you might call it trust, that is when we can have those kinds of amazing changes in our lives. And that, I think, it's a great way to end this episode. But not before asking you one question that I ask every guest, which is if you could go back 10 years in time and meet an old version of yourself, what would you say? What advice would you give yourself? Get sober. Get sober. That would be my advice. If there is any way to communicate with the younger version of myself 10 years ago, that's what I tell myself. And also, I will send back some good stock tips. <laughs> Interesting. John, thank you very much for coming to our show. I have personally learned from this interview and I'm sure our listeners have as well. If people want to learn more from you, where can they go? You can read the entire Mind Hacking book in advance of its publication date at mindhacky.ng. So that's mindhacking with a .ng, no .com. I also blog regularly at our company website at uh, mediashower.com. That's M-E-D-I-A-S-H-O-W-E-R.com. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much, John. All right. So that was the interview with Sir John Hagraf. You can find the show notes for this episode with all the links, names, and resources mentioned at livendarecom slash episode 10. If this is your first time listening, thank you for coming. We bring a great variety of guests from all walks of life and practitioners of different meditation techniques, so be sure to stick around. Please subscribe via your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. 
And if you have learned something valuable today, it would mean a lot to me if you leave a comment to this show on iTunes or on the blog. You can follow me on Twitter, at GeoSelf. And we now end it with a quote, this one from Buddha. Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded.